man, we got it so fucking good here. It is, it is heaven on earth. It really is. All of this place, you know, and it, it really leaves people disinclined. They get almost, they just go into this sleepwalk thing where it's so beautiful that it doesn't, you know, you don't actively have to get on the front foot to, to look after it and you just assume it's going to look after itself and it's always going to be there. Um, and I think, you know, the last couple of weeks we've had a pretty rude reminder that it's not always going to be like that. It's, and it's going to have to, it's probably going to take some people to um, take a bit of a fight to, to save it. That's Sean Doherty and you're listening to The Beginning of Earth. I feel like something is rapidly transfiguring in my core being, an awakening of sorts. The beginning of us. A raw conversation hosted by your main fucker, Billy Otto. Pulling apart what it means to rebirth, to rewild, to be curious and to rechild. Something good. It's something real. Can you feel it, everybody? Hey fam, it's so good to be back again. Here I am in Lennox Head. It's Friday morning. Slept like a beast. Been making music all week with my mate. And it's so good just to be able to come back to presence and peace. Did some breath work this morning. And feeling really renewed and uh, reset for the weekend. I'm sorry that this podcast has come a little bit late. There's just been a, a few very good things that have been going down. But I just want to start by um, just reading out a bit of feedback I received from last week's podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was the part one of the making of the Born EP with my friend Jara, and hope you enjoyed it. Just got this one from Steph, a little notification. Oh my God, I just listened to your latest podcast, loved it, and totally relate to everything you said about the life of a teacher. <laughs> Listening to you and your guest speakers on your podcast the last few weeks inspire me to tell my principal the other day that I'm having next year off. Exclamation. Ooh, emoji. I feel so free, so thank you for being part of my mental journey to take a leap of faith and just do it and know anything is possible and that opportunities will arise. Steph, that, that little DM made my day. Thank you so much. The making of that podcast episode really made me realise how much I need to be grateful for opportunities that I've had um, to make art and to, to grow that artistic language. This week is a bit different. We're diving deep with Sean Doherty. I love Sean Doherty. The surf writer, editor, Patagonia, brand ambassador. At the start of this year, life looked a lot different. It's the middle of summer and our country of Australia was on fire. Yeah, proper. It was a brutal time and um, there's a lot of division um, in politics. Um, there's a lot of confusion. But for myself, people that are still pretty fresh to understanding politics and big oil, big fossil fuel companies, it was really powerful coming back to Shawno, um, to his Instagram and kind of just getting a tangible, um, palpable insight into how to understand the systems and things that need to change. I recorded this inside Sean's house, his old house in Byron Bay, when I was coming through to do some shows at the start of this year. 
and there is a lovely little whippersnipper lawnmower man that is buzzing away next to where we're recording so just bear with us but we go deep and we talk bra boys we talk cicadas we talk about the life that he had in Newcastle and Foster uh, but also the deeper dreams that were emerging as he went into his heart and realised that he was not called to be a doctor. It was actually because of Sean that I was able to travel Australia as part of the Fight for the Bike campaigns and the Patagonia film. So yeah, super grateful for his, his vision. The beginning of us. Just want to welcome the rogue writer, journo, Patagonia brand manager, world tour correspondent, mate, this guy, he's lived nine lives and he's an absolute frother. <laughs> Are you reading from the list there, Bill? No, I'm actually not. I was just like, it's all here. The Asian brain. But, um, Sean, you've become, you don't like to say it, but you've become a bit of an uncle to me. You like, you prefer cousin, right? Yeah, Pinky cousin. Younger. Yeah, it makes me feel younger. <laughs> Although now I've, now I've just found out how old you are. <laughs> I think we're closer on par. <laughs> No, nah, man, it's such an honour to have a chat. I really appreciate your time. Welcome to the lounge room, Bill. Good yeah, to have you so here. Cool. Where are we? We are in Ruskin Street, Byron Bay, in an old banger, fibro kind of beach shack that I rent yeah. when I'm here. Uh, yeah, it's nice. So still living between here and Torquay? Yep, still bouncing around between here and Torquay. I'm back to Torquay tomorrow. So yeah. when I get, sick of, uh, I get sick of the cold in Torquay, I come to Byron. And when I get sick of uh, human beings <laughs> in Byron, <laughs> I go to Torquay. <laughs> it's a nice balance. Awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, Shona, you've, you bring so much energy, energy to people's lives and um, I think you've become a real um, voice of hope and beautiful criticism in this mm. time of, um, you know, broken leadership in our country. And, but, yeah, like what, what wakes you up in the morning? Uh, this week, um, kids, <laughs> they're generally up pretty early. Um, no, I'm a, I'm up before dawn every day. Um, best hours of the day, first couple, easy. But, um, I, I don't know, I'm between a lot of things right now. Um, usually it's kind of some kind of coastal activity gets me up and moving, um, early surf, although that's become pretty tough up here in the last few years with the sharks. But, um, but yeah, it gets me up, mate. I, my passions, I suppose, and I hate that word. It's just Why so... Why do you hate the word passions? Oh, it's so overdone. Passions. It's overdone. It's, it's been overcooked by in so many capacities <laughs> that it's lost all meaning, yeah. you know. Um, it's lost the true meaning of what it, actually, what it actually is. But I am passionate about writing. I'm passionate about the coast. I'm passionate about saving the coast. Uh, I'm passionate about going surfing. Mm. Very passionate about that. Yeah. <laughs> I recall um, calling you the other day and in the midst of obviously people see you as a bit of a, a commentator right now on current politics mm. and lack of good policy and conservation. But in the middle of that, I called you, you're at the beach, you're at the pass, <laughs> with your feet in the water, just kind of chilling out. And you told me that you were decompressing. Well, as much as you can with your phone still near. I actually, <laughs> went, I actually went, no, the best thing was I had, I had all these people to, I had to call 
And we generally, we've been down the past the last four or five days and the kids just take the long board out and I don't even see them. It's like the babysitter. I just send them out and they just cause havoc out there. Um, and I try not to look and see what kind of havoc they're causing. But I had all these calls I was going to make and I got down there and I'd left my phone at home and I went and I kind of, for the first five minutes, I'm kind of wigging out a bit, just going, fuck, something's wrong, you know. And then I just went, man, that's this is actually life, yeah. you know. Uh, to not be with it mm. and it's just been and generally I'm like that anyway like I, I don't feel a need to be attached to that thing <clears throat> and I, ha- I don't really have this strong social urge to have to talk to people all the time I'm, I'm actually really antisocial in a lot of ways mm. but then in the middle of what's happening with the, the all the, the fires and the activism and the the whole deal and like you said you know what's happening in this country right now it's kind of it, it's been a really rad kind of couple of weeks and so kind of even, you know, it's, it's funny you sit down there at the past, it's the most, well, it's not really peaceful because there's 8 million fucking people down there. But it's, <laughs> but it's like you go, man, this is just the, the most beautiful part of Australian life here, you know. You're living, living this beautiful part of life and you're looking back at the hinterland it's just like it doesn't get any better. And then you look at your phone and you just go, mate, what a shit show. Mm. It's like half the country's up in flames pretty much everyone is just up in arms and it's just like how can something so good become something so bad at the same time and you and you're living this weird juxtaposition between it yeah and it's almost like a dissonance it's real it is a real and it's what has stopped australia you know probably for the last 30 years and probably even going back further than that man we got it so fucking good here it is, it is heaven on earth. It really is. All of this place, you know. And it, it really leaves people disinclined. They get almost, they just go into this sleepwalk thing where it's so beautiful that it doesn't, you know, you don't actively have to get on the front foot to, to look after it. Mm. And you just assume it's going to look after mm. itself and it's always going to be there. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the last couple of weeks we've had a pretty rude reminder mm. that, it's not always going to be like that. Yeah. It's and it's going to have to. It's probably going to take some people to um, take a bit of a fight to to mm. save it. Mm. So. Yeah, I I want to go there, man. Um, like I think too, as an Australian right now, like I, I I've been surfing the last two weeks, getting really fun waves mm. up at Noosa, Goldie, Kingy, down here, and I feel like I'm kind of living in this duality of like I'm experiencing bliss, serenity, peace, other people have lost their homes, whole ecosystems being destroyed and ravaged. Yeah. yeah. It's just weird. It's, and there's nothing that I can mm. actually do right now for those my brothers and sisters suffering in Gippsland and in Kangaroo Island. Mm. Um, and we're all trying to raise money. Yesterday we had like thousands coming down for our little busk mm. festival that we had, but it's just weird when we just don't feel like we have conscious leadership and it's not even a hate campaign. I'm sure Scotty, nah. like, he's probably a great dad. Like, it's not actually about fucking scapegoating one guy and just trying to pin him, laying all our sins it's, on that one lamb, but it's just it's just weird. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, it, it really is at a strange point right now and that I think pretty much, and I had this conversation with someone yesterday, it's like I think everyone's known and accepts what's been happening and climate change is there and it's always, we've talked about it for a long time and we've understood it and we know, you know, 
what it looks like in numbers and in theory and whatever. But I think what you've seen in the past few weeks is that, mate, that's what it looks like. Mm. That's what it feels like, mm. you know. The country, with Sydney covered in smoke, with the South Coast up in fire, with Kangaroo Island on fire, with, with this, that's what it looks like, yeah. you know. It's kind of here. Yeah. It's And I, it was going to take that to yeah. really, to kind of shock people out of the, the comfort zone yeah. that, they, that they're in. Yeah, as we as I was talking about, like living here just makes you feel like you said. Mm. You know, it's so beautiful. It can it just numbs you into this false sense of reality <laughs> that it's always going to stay like that. Yeah, and and that's not the case. Yeah. And we've just been in the last couple of weeks. We've seen it. We've seen. Yeah. We've got a glimpse of what it could be like. Yeah, and it, it's pretty fucking scary. So scary. Mm. Do you mind? Can we just close? Those oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit? Um, Crew out there listening, we've just got an epic legend of a whippersnipper next door. We need to like lock ourselves in this sweat box. <laughs> it's the sound of the Aussie summer, mate. See, there's no cicadas anymore, but just leaf blowers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's man. strange. It, no, that's funny it though. Breaks, yeah. But you, unless you actually actively start looking for little markers about how things have changed, like when I was a kid growing up, mate, you could not. And I, I grew up, I was born in Wollongong, did one year in Sydney, but I, from age six onwards I lived in Foster. Mm. You could not hear yourself think in summer for mm. cicadas. Mm. They were everywhere. Yeah. Christmas, Christmas beetles were everywhere, mate. They were plague proportions. But where are they? <laughs> you know, bogong moths, you know, where are they? Oh, man. It's like it's so different. Um, yeah. That was the sound of an Aussie summer to me was cicadas. And and you just, they're still around, but you just don't hear them like you used to. Yeah. Um, in the same kind of deafening way. Bird life. Bird life, yeah. Little yep. skinks. Those little yep. lizards everywhere when I was growing yep. up. Yep. Swamp snakes. Yep. There's all sorts. And it's yeah. slow creep. And yeah. and they there's all sorts of different terms for it. Like one's called landscape amnesia where you you kind of <clears throat> over in time, over time you kind of lose lose memory of what it used to be like yeah. and, you, and generation to generation that slips yeah. like to what you accept as the normal state of an ecosystem and, yeah. and how things are. That, that slips generation to generation and even yeah. within a generation it slips um, yeah. and it, you really just don't know, you know, how good it was um, yeah. and you lose track of it. But it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, man, like I, I'm a super... Uh, uh, emotional guy, very sentimental, mm. very nostalgic, super empath, and so mm. like just thinking back to even images of that, mm. I feel super emotional. Mm. Just um, to how I grew up and how much I learned from Mother Nature growing up when I didn't even know I was learning, but just mm. being and yeah, I grew up pre-internet, pre-screen. Yep. And so all you had was your three mates in a cubby house, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the foreland was cleared, it was yeah. bush and yeah. you're out there just yeah. like grabbing scrap pieces of wood and sheet metal and just doing shit. Yeah, totally. And that's it, yeah, that's the Australian way and it's been that way for a long time. Yeah. Like I, where I grew up in, we were right at the end of Foster and we bought our, our place kind of, we were 50 yards from the beach but also probably a couple of hundred yards from the National Park mm. and it was just these three mountains that mm. just... It's Cape Hawk, so it goes all out and there's no one there. Yeah. And we had that as a playground. Mm. It was like, mate, you could fish, dive, surf, do the whole thing. You're just hanging it all day. Yeah. It was crazy. 
And what is and it now? Has it changed? It, no, it hasn't changed at all. Okay. It's actually got better. You know? <laughs> and this and this because they actually grazed, they had cattle grazing on part of it and yeah. they've, they've ripped them out of there. And so a lot of it's grown back and mm. started to resemble a more, more a natural state. And it's still untouched. Yeah. It's like, and this is, you know, and this is this is what every Australian kind of wrestles with. You yeah. you see the see the fires and you see all the, you know, and the, this really this real darkness comes over. And you go, man, it's like, is this what it's going to be like? And mm. but then you then you walk out and and you just and you see something like that, you know. Yeah. And you and you're right. It's like, okay, it's it's this it's the balance between dark and light. Yeah. And anyone sure. who anyone who's in Involved in like any kind of activism, it's particularly environmental. You you kind of go through this all the time. Yeah. You kind of really you you think the worst, but hope for the best, mm. and you you get reminders of both. Yeah, and, for sure. And you just got to wrestle with it. But mate, I think on the whole, in Australia, we're um we're so fucking damn lucky. Yeah. And but that's that puts extra pressure on us. Yeah. Because. Like you've travelled, you know, like you go around the rest of the world, mm. mate, you don't get coastline like this. Yeah, for sure. It's like. It's a deeper responsibility. It's a deeper responsibility. Yeah. Like you you got to. And we should be a leader in renewables. Yeah. And right. research and. Mate, we should just be. We're we, the last ones to the party. We've got it this good. Yeah. Like we've got a, there's a, we've got a job to, yeah. to actually keep it this way. Otherwise it just becomes like everywhere else. Yeah. Um, I want to go there. Um, so. Where did all this kickstart Shauno with conservation? And was there a catalyst moment for you where you were like, well, I want to take a stand? Obviously, you grew up a surfer, Foster, yeah. Gong, Nui. I've kind of, for a long time, I've wanted to, to try and get some kind of like activism game going. It's like, but, you know, like as I explained, for surfers in particular, for the past probably 20 years, like in my time growing up as a surfer, it, it's not really a big thing, activism. You know, and, and it's simple. It's why it hasn't been. We've just had it too fucking good. Yeah. It's like it's really we have lived such a charmed life yeah. on such a really beautiful coastline that we haven't had much to fight against. So that being the case, it, it never was a big thing. Like I do remember as a kid, and it's funny, when we we were surfing this back beach, um, anyone who's been at Foster knows a place called Janie's Corner, but there's another beach around from that. And when we were growing up, the sewerage works were over the back and my brother and I were there surfing one day. At, at, they call it Shark Beach is the name of the back beach. And um, sitting out there, fun little waves. I just heard, in the middle of it, just heard this, this big gurgle and all of a sudden from right where the, the pipe comes out, this huge cloud of fucking untreated sewerage just starts pumping out. And it's just like... And we're just in the middle of it and it just stunk to like, as you'd, you know, you'd probably imagine. And he and I just looked at each other and just gone, what the fuck? Is... So we went, we're right out. I said, this should not be happening. We ran straight home, got glass jars, paddled back out, scooped it up with, with the Grogan's in it, the whole deal. Took it in the car, stopped first at the local paper on the way, got, it, got photographs with it all, got interviewed for a story. It ran on the cover of the paper. Uh, the next week, and we went straight from the newspaper office to the council and dropped the jars on the front desk and said, "Can we see someone?" And and that was, but we like we had that sense already, you know. Um, and again, I think that it tracks back, and it's a common thing in Australia. You mate, you got it that good when something something threatens it in that way, mate. It, 
it's a, it's not even a conscious decision. It's more instinct. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to just go off. It just it just happens yeah. that you're going. Well, I'm just gonna gonna go and stop this. Yeah. Because it's not right. How and, old were you guys when that story happened? Uh probably 16, 17. Wow. Yeah, pretty young. So Love that. yeah. So- Punk rock kids, yeah. renegades. <laughs> well, mate, mate, Maroubra, it's like, yeah, yeah, you've seen it there with Malabar, and it's yeah. like, and that's what you think back. That was probably the last time surfers really got mm. got on the front foot collectively as a big group mm. and fought something. It was yeah. when those all the ocean outfalls were were in their their golden days, yeah, <laughs> pumping shit out like Malabar and then North Head at Manly, um, and you had them. That was, and they had them all up and down the coast. And it's just rad to think that. That was only 20 years ago that yeah. we were pumping shit into the ocean and swimming in it. Yeah. Because I think now yeah, because I think what the world realises is that surfers had this intimate connection with the ocean, with the great mother, and so I think we have a first-hand testimony of, of what the ocean means to us because we're so close in proximity with it. It's, it's an intimate dance that we mm. have with the ocean. And so like, for me now as a millennial, I feel like it, it nearly goes hand in hand to some degree with mm. surfers and activism. It's one. It's mm. like there's not one surfer who was against the fight for the bike protest. No. Nah. It's, yeah. And it, they all knew about it. They were there. All their mates were there. Yeah. Like, and it, it completely reawakened that whole, it switched back on that that little, that gene that, yeah. that sits inside all surfers and goes, well, okay, it's like we need to get back onto this. Um yeah. And it was it was pretty rad. It was pretty rad to see that 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 that, that sense that that they're compelled to do something that hadn't completely gone away. Yeah. Um, and yeah, mate, we've seen it's what a huge force it could potentially be. And I, and I, I reckon it's only scratch the surface, yeah. really. Um, the bike campaign and and the things that have happened around it are just a, a, you're just getting started. I think. Awesome, man. I'd love to go there with um, the fight for the bite stuff. And so how did you first start getting involved with being a bit of a whistleblower on the matter? Yeah, well, it was an odd one because we, <clears throat> we started through um, my work at Patagonia. Yeah. We looked at – we saw this thing pop up. This is back when – this is in 2016 when BP were down there. Yeah. So Equinor hadn't even turned up at this stage. And we looked at this thing and just gone – we're looking at it just going and that and that spill modeling was there at that point still yeah. you know so you could see what would happen if something went wildly wrong and we're looking at it it's going why is fucking no one talking about this yeah. it's like this is huge and no one was there and and I had a few mates living down there at, at that point um, and so we just started doing a bit more time down there and and working in with the the groups the fight for the bike groups down there and um, and then it just, and it just, you know, and it really it was slow going for two years, three years. It was still because you, you think about it, mate, it's like not a lot of crew go down there. It's a fucking long way away. And it's removed, like we're up here in Byron and that's what people think the Australian yeah, coast yeah. looks like, you know. Um, it's green, it's mountainous, <clears throat> it's, you know, white sand. It's like, it's like the bite is in a lot of ways kind of very, it's different, it's dry, it's, you know, edge of the desert in places, it's cliffs, it's rocky, it's raw. Mm. It's, um, it's really removed from that East Coast consciousness. Mm. So and that, that's why it was really hard to get traction for that issue with all the people here on the East Coast because mm. no one, one, hardly anyone goes there. Mm. And it's just a very different mm. state of mind, you know. Yeah, like you're only going to be um, 
like to go to Cactus, you have to be a surfer. <laughs> oh, mate. You know, like, you there's to, nothing. You there. have to really want to get like seven months ago. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've been there twice in my life, but like the first time I went there, I was like, seven or something, went back there and I'm like, it's full on like Mad Max. Yeah, it's like post-apocalyptic, it's, nothing there. Yep, yep, it's crazy and it's so, it's made for, if you've grown up on the East Coast, it's confronting. Yeah. It's like when we first started doing serious time, it's fucking confronting mm. because it's so raw and there's no one around and and you're just in the back of your mind. Whenever you're surfing, you're thinking of sharks yeah. and, it's, and it's like extreme ocean, extreme, but it's just wild, you know. It's, did you get that sense? Like when you yeah. went down there, like how, how different it was yeah, to the East Coast? Energy. Like um, I found it really reflective. Like I mm. found it like a haunting meditative mm. vibe down yeah. there. My mates and I, because it was actually the week that I was supposed to get married. <laughs> oh, and really? So it was pretty heavy. Chrissy and I went together. Like we were on this breakup phase. We didn't think we were going to be back together. And so <laughs> all of her family from America were out. Yeah. So I'm like, fuck, I'm getting out of Sydney. The, where's the <laughs> furthest place I can yeah. go? Cactus. <laughs> Ten hours from Adelaide. We turned off our phones. We were just like reading books, just surfing <laughs> castles. Yeah. And caves. Um, and then we were just like just cooking our baked beans and nachos and whatever and just chilling under the stars and our swags. So it was really spiritual. So for mm. me, my reflection is like it's pristine down there. Like the water just feels different. Yeah. There's so much life mm. um, in the ecology down there. And I just, um, yeah, I just love the space. And I feel like people that travel there, like yeah. Sejuna and that little part, like they, they go back like every year. It's like their little Mecca experience. Mm. All these old stories of like. You know, some big fish out there in the lineup, and just everyone's just super reflective. Yep. Yeah. I just think those big, wide, flat horizons, you know, yeah, <clears throat> just puts you in that state yeah. of mind where you. And the fact you're just so removed from everything, like yeah. you said, you know, there's, there's no, there's hardly any phone coverage. Yeah. You don't see. You know, we'll go down there. You, you'll drive for for a day and see three mm. cars. You know, yeah, for sure. It's and that's just what it is. It's just big and empty, and it just it just puts a broom through. All your thoughts and, yeah. and just let you kind of reconnect with a place like that. Honestly, man, it was pretty special how the universe kind of aligned everything to work because w- like early this year, like I was such a wreck. So early 2019, mm. freshly single from like organising a wedding, Chrissy and I were off. I had to fix some like – I had to really acknowledge some mental health stuff that was really off yeah. for me, some flow that wasn't happening and – some individual trauma that we had to kind of reflect on, whatever. And so I just went on this journey. I had so much time. So I went and visited Kyle. I was like, Kyle, mm. I've got to get out of Sydney for a while. I'll play bass for you for free for a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yeah. And then on that trip, Damo, mm. Damo Cole, who was one of the forerunners for the campaign for the Fight for the Light protests, he gave me a call through mm. Dusty Boots okay. to write a song. We yeah. hadn't met at that stage. He asked Dusty to write it. Dusty couldn't do it. So it went to me and I was at Isabel Lucas's house just staying mm. there and I was just alone in this like tree house and I just wrote this song, Can't Take the Ocean Out of Me. Four weeks later, I go down to <laughs> talk at Easter. Yeah. We just, we throw this song together in like two and a half weeks. It gets mixed in like Chicago, gets sent back to me. Dusty Boots sends down a saxophone solo. I'm editing it in the car <laughs> and then I play it. And there's like, I don't know how many thousands of protesters were there that day at Torgate. It was massive. It was huge. Yeah. And um, so I play this, you know, little thing. I was kind of nervous because like all the WSL crew were there. Like John yeah. John was there. Yeah. Like Ronnie Blakey, like everyone was there. Yeah, like, yeah. I'd never played the song. I, I couldn't remember the lyrics. <laughs> 
And I thought, you never know these protests that you're playing for free. There could be a few thousand. There could be a hundred people. You mm. don't really know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you- then we just saw the crew rocking up and I was just like pinching myself just like I hadn't played a show <laughs> with my heartbreak for like three months. Yeah, the yeah. the first thing I'd done. Chucked in so the deep I'd end. So I get up in front of like <laughs> 2,000 people. And so I finished that. I'm paddling out. It was just like one of the most special days for the year. But after that, there's this bald-headed bloke that runs over to me. <laughs> When I'm holding my guitar, and it's Shorto, Shorto yeah. Doherty. It's like, mate, I'm here. Oh, that was- I've, uh, I've done some work for Patagonia. I'm like, oh. I know your name, and da da da. And oh. so, but anyway, we start chatting, and I never thought that mm. that the relationship would re- rekindle in this way. And, yeah. And then no. six months later, you give me a phone call that you want to use the song for yeah. the fight for the bike film. I was with Chrissy, just kind of pinching my arm that this was happening. You know. Yeah. That's. It's been a bit of a journey, huh? Yeah, and then we just do a bunch of shows on a tour together. Just <laughs> <laughs> Sean Owen seeing me playing some music. And so it's just an incredible way to start and end a year, like a very transformational year of my life, man. So I really want to thank you for your belief and no. your encouragement. And, you know, when you go through a huge crisis, you kind of put everything on the table. Like, yeah. who am I? What am I doing? It's super existential. Fuck, am I even an artist? Mm. I lost so much confidence. I was off social media for like three months before the fight with the bike stuff yeah, happened. Yeah. So I just I didn't have any I didn't know what to do with my life. Was I gonna stay in Australia? Was I gonna move to Sweden? I, you know, I was confused. So. Yeah. I don't think I I don't re- reckon we're alone either. Yeah. In that in the that thing taking getting a kind of a life of its own and yeah. dragging people into it and dragging people along and yeah. it I think it's given a lot of people a better sense of of who they are and where they yeah. belong in in the country, yeah, you know where they belong in their own head, um, yeah. and giving them a little bit of confidence to mm. to get on the front foot with some of this stuff, yeah, and actually speak up for yeah for what they believe in because it's yeah. like I said, there's been that disconnect for quite a while. Yeah, we've been happy just to go along and do what we do, yeah. um, but I think the like you said, that was the perfect example for you. You know, you said you're at this vulnerable point where you know you've had a bit of shit on, and and then you turned up. And there's 3,000 people there. Yeah. But, mate, how fucking good did you feel yeah. when you, that song finished yeah. and the whole crowd just lit up yeah. and everyone just paddled out? It was oh, like man. suddenly it's like we're all, you know, there was a huge communal sense yeah. that this was something really good and important yeah. and that we needed to do it. Yeah. And it's kind of just wherever it's gone since. Yeah. It's, it's just tapped into that. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's. A lot of people go, you know, one of the criticisms with all the paddle outs and stuff, they go, well, you know, what's it going to change? Yeah. You know, these guys are, these guys are, are going to make these decisions anyway and, then, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to listen to a bunch of, uh, of surfers mm. paddling out. And we're, you know, we're, we're easily dismissed, you yeah. know, cause people go, oh, they're just surfers. Mm. It's like, um, but in, in saying that, what it does is, on a personal level, you get in that group, yeah, and everyone's there for the same reason. Mm. It's hugely empowering, yeah. You know, whether it wins this thing down the bite or not, it, we don't know. Like you know, we've had one decision go against us. It, it may or may not happen in the future, but it's it's a huge win, yeah. you know, collectively 100%. and personally for people who've been involved with it. Yeah, man. I think that um, yeah, I I think that's part of the uh, the Australian not the tall poppy, but just like oh, the protests don't do anything anyway. Yeah, that mentality. But I think it's a spiritual thing. I think it's when there's a collective consciousness when people come together, 
the spirit of togetherness when you're out there with everyone paddling out. Like I paddled out with like 8,000 or so this year, like yeah. over three different paddle outs and... Mate, um, you're you're, and, and, you're like the best on ground with all the. You've probably done more of them than anyone. <laughs> you and Damo, mate, you've yeah. <laughs> you've done dozens of them. But it's the same, like big or small paddle outs. It's the same energy. Yeah, and I think there is just this heightened sense of awareness. I'm no yogi levitator, mm. but it's just out there are young grommies that are going to be massive influences one mm-hmm. day. And it's like once you see, you can't unsee. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like. You know, seeing poverty one time in your life in India, it's a good thing for your soul because you realise mm. what you have oh, and you totally. realise the injustice, like just to be there and to partake, see, just being proxy. Yep. And so, um, and, you know, like I feel like what has been galvanised is going to be something mm. massive for our future for conservation, for sure. Yeah, and I've always said Even that. Even if we don't see it now. Yep. Um, and I've said that all along. Look, I, so I knew in all reality, like the bite thing, we were probably long odds to win it. Yeah. It's just because of who you're up against. You're up against yeah. the whole system and a system that's operated like that since time immemorial. Mm. You're up against billions of dollars. You're up against huge companies and, yeah. we, and we're just a group of, of crew from the coast. So, But on the long game, yeah. it's like, man, there's a win coming yeah. at, in some point by bringing all these people together. Yeah. And I've always believed in that and I've always, you know, that's why when I got the news that they, they'd got an approval on this, on this bite well, like I didn't wake up in, you know, under a dark cloud. I kind of knew because I, I kind of <laughs> knew. position. Yeah, oh yeah, I totally rocking. I've done, yeah, you know, and I've probably over the course of a few years been in that fetal position a few yeah. po- a few points. But man, I knew it was probably coming. But I've accepted that there's there's a greater good as well yeah. coming out of it, um, and really accepted that that I, I need to focus on that yeah. as well. Um, and yeah, it's because, yeah, like the big media outlets aren't talking about it, no. and they're not really allowed to. And Rupert and his boys, you know, yeah, they've got their, their holdings, thing. their trappings, and so it's like, but that's the power of social media now, and these huge influences that are getting, yeah, like, it's great. Like, yep. people know about that story, about that coastline now, but we wouldn't have. Yep, you know, exactly. So, yeah, and it's brought together media. this huge, <clears throat> you know, this huge group, and it's and it's like I said, it was amazing that so many people like. When it broke in the eastern states, that whole fight for the bite, yeah. it was that was amazing. It was like, like I said, most of those people have never been there and they'll never mm-hmm. go there. But just the idea of what it represented yeah. and the fact that you could get solidarity yes. between crew on the Gold Coast with crew in the bite and crew in Torquay, crew on the south coast mm-hmm. at Ulladulla, you know, crew in Manly, like crew everywhere. Mm. Everyone jumped on it. It was like, okay, it's like. That's something we can work with here mm. for sure to do some good down the track. Yeah. So that's where exactly what we're going to do. We still don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's like it's like people are coming to me going like, okay, and they just, people want to do stuff now. Yeah. And it's really hard because it's it's a hard problem to, to tackle. Like the bite one's easy because it's one thing. Yeah. You know, if but the rest of it, or <laughs> it's like, mate, where do you even start? Mate. It's... Like, uh, and even the seismic testing that's still happening, like just off my home in Newey. Mm. Yeah, continues. totally. Yep. Still no one's talking about it. It's a whole other issue to address. We're still going to Dani. Yep. What's happening off West Coast as well. And yeah, but at least there's a conversation now. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And people are more conscious about it. And you see, you know, and as, as horrific as the fires have been, it's, again, it's a point in time that you'll look back on in 10 years and go, well, it really shifted people's thinking yes. about 
about what was happening around yeah. them. You know, they saw it was real, and then <clears throat> and then they acted on it. Yeah, which is I think is what you're going to see. Mm. Um, yeah, we see it today. You were just down the street here. Yeah, yeah. There's people marching in the streets today. Mm. Which you know, it's Byron that happens most days, but <laughs> but they're also in they're also in Sydney and Perth and yeah. Adelaide and um, and people are pissed about this and they they just want something done. You know, yeah. there's a lot of frustration out there right now, and because um, I feel like now, like for politicians that don't really, it, it seems like they don't really give a shit, or friends of mine or family, like it still is kind of head in the sand stuff. Like I feel like, do you have a consciousness you have a conscience mm. to be able to say what you're saying and like people laugh at me still posting about the fight for the bite stuff yeah, like yeah. this billy's gone fucking hippie shit <laughs> but i'm just like yeah. man like when you see blue whales for the first time it's just it's, yeah. it's a spiritual thing yeah it's like totally. you want to see that for your kids and it's it has become like even talking about wanting a future for your kids it's become like a bit of a, a corny like rhetoric now, but it's like it still means something to me. And obviously, Mate, you you being a father yourself, it's, Sean, it's a reality of it. That's what yeah. it is. You know, we've like all of those paddle outs, mate. Half the people to two thirds of the people there were family groups. Yeah, dude. you know, because that's what it is. And essentially, this is what it taps into. And this is where the political system's broken. Is all these decisions are made in three year terms. They're only making decisions to get themselves reelected. Yeah. In three years' time yeah. or four years' time, it's they're not making decisions for fifty years' time. Yeah, they're not making decisions for a hundred years' time. They're certainly not making them for a thousand years. Yeah, you know. Whereas that the first Australians here, they had that pretty down. Yeah, they had it worked okay. out. You know that you got to hand hand something down, not as good as you had, even better mm. than you had it. And better didn't equal richer. Mm. Better equal equal the land in a better state. Mm. You know. Um, and that consciousness has just disappeared in the, in the space of a generation or two. Wow. It, it's really just disappeared and it's, it's disappeared in a cloud of self-interest and it's just, it's just perfectly personified by, by the government in there at the moment. It's just, it's, it only runs on, on an economic rationale. Yeah. It's only about money. It's, it doesn't factor in anything beyond getting themselves elected again at the next mm. election um, and they don't care. It's that it, there's no long game mm. with these guys. Um, and if there is a long game, it's for themselves. It's not for us. Yeah. So I think it's the difference when we see uh, Kiwi Brothers with Jacinda. Like, it's just oh, it's a whole other world there. Like, yeah. let's all move to Wellington, eh? Oh, mate, we'll just become the West Island. <laughs> <laughs> Make Australia the West Island. I'd, I'd happily do that. And it's funny because, like, we've sat there and laughed at New Zealand for so long. So long. And just go, I had a little cousin across the, across the ditch. But, dude, they have just so got it right on yeah. every level in, in terms of policy. First Nations. It's, mate, they've, they've made peace. Yep, made peace with the First Nations. They've, they've incorporated that into their wider culture. Yeah. So it's, it's indiscernible. It's not yeah. like a white culture. It's not a yeah. Pakia culture. And a, and a Maori culture. It's like the one thing. Yeah. Um, which, and that's clearly not happening mm. here, um, which, is, which is just criminal. Really, yeah. you know, and then I look at this: the Australian, we, Australians tear themselves in up over this whole idea of cultural identity of who we are. You know, mm. who are we as Australians? You know, you know, is it mateship? Is it you know barbecues? Is it you know what is it? It's like, um, it's like fuck. If we actually just embraced a little more of the first Australian culture back into what we are now, mm. 
you know, if kids learn a lot more about it growing up and learn it, learn the local Indigenous dialect in school, just as a as a subject, so they could converse in it a little bit, mm. and and they learn about the land in particular around where they are. Yeah, just so and understood the rhythms of it and 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 what it mean meant to the first Australians and, and how it actually worked. Yeah, it would be it would remove all of that cultural cringe that oh, that dude. we've got. Because it would actually, you'd have an, a cultural identity that that meant something more than two hundred years worth of white colonialism. Yeah, you know, and it happened. You've got this sixty thousand, hundred thousand year old culture here, yeah, the oldest one in existence that's still accessible, and you barely acknowledge it. Mm. And it certainly doesn't any play any day to day role in people's lives. You know, at most, from, you, at most you might have a street sign at the end. You <laughs> might you might have an Indigenous street sign, but even they're pretty rare, you know, yeah. or the, you might have the town might still have its oh, Indigenous it's name. But it, but you, you, you need to go another level deeper yeah. and it would just, it would fix, it would take time, but it would mm. fix a lot of things um, on on our side of the fence and for, for the first Australians as well. Yeah. Because I, I personally, like, coming from a Wobbicle country, I know nothing about a Wobbicle culture. Mm. Specific things of the land, certain ways they thought about family and connection to the land. Um, one of my mantra words for last year was actually Dadiri, uh-huh. which in Eora language means, um, Gadigal means uh, deep listening. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. trying to, like, increment by increment just in bed and trying to, like, set an intention to spend more time with elders this year. Mm, yeah. Just listen to the stories and, and, and just receive because it, it is part of our culture as well. If we were born in Australia, like it's also part of our culture. Yeah. It's our heritage, yep. and, which is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And we're just, um, yeah, and we're kind of cooking it by not by not acknowledging it and just yeah. doing a bit more. It had, and we've seen it, you see it with New Zealand. It makes, it, it makes things so much more harmonious, mm. you know, um, and it's easy. It's easily done. It's all sitting there. Mm. Wow, dude. Yeah, like I spent a lot of time going up like with little church trips going to these little Indigenous towns. Like I went to a place a couple of years called Gaduga. Mm-hmm. It's close to uh, Walgett. Okay, and yeah. And Lightning Ridge, all those kind yeah, of yeah. towns. Like, and, and that was some of my – some of the most special weeks of my life was just learning, sitting and learning, mm. face painting, but just listening to stories and – just a different way of seeing reality coming from um, like Newcastle's so white, bro. Like I hated being brown when I was younger. Like everyone's just trying to be white, always dreaming yeah. of having a white girl, white this, just. But there was a part of me that always wanted to learn and yeah. saw there was something deeper to this story and that, um, you know, my dad really got me into um, uh, Blood on the Waddle oh, yeah. when I was younger. Yep. I'm starting to read Dark Emu now, mm-hmm. but I'm just—I'm so late to the party, bro. Yeah, well, we all are. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's really—it's exactly what we are. We're late yeah. to the party. Yeah, but it's not too late. It's like, yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff out there now. Yeah, um, to and a lot of easy entry points to get yeah. a, to get a better understanding yeah. of it. Um, and it's all it all it takes is just a bit of uh, will, just yeah. to, to an open mind, just to have a look at it. Because I think and for a lot of us as well, that it comes from very like oftentimes beautiful conservative Christian families, what we've failed to recognise is that the conditioning runs so deep as Mm -hmm. far as white colonialism, white man's God, white man's theology. And so anything else outside the gospel is heresy, animism, pagan. And so 
trying to peel back and just go like, wait, all this weird superstition that mm. I've inherited, like how can I just look at some of these concepts from a whole new perspective and just be open and soft Yeah, to totally. this 60,000-year-old wisdom mm. that has been here and lasted. And Yeah, it'd yeah. make... It seriously would... It would cure Australia's cultural cringe. Wow. Totally. If yeah. we just embraced it a little more. And it's... Like I said, it's, it's there. It's, you know, yeah. it's just... Just one step at a time, just little steps. Sean, I just want to go to the fires. We've got like a few things to talk about before we close up. And um, I'm just so sick of all these bloody greenies like that won't let us backburn. <laughs> didn't you just start, didn't you start a couple of those fires, Bill? I actually, yeah, they caught me. Rupert and his boys caught me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, it's just it's seriously, and it's how and did it's hard that even to become get... a thing? How did that become? Like one of the biggest backlashes of response to the resistance yeah. to well, it was, consciousness. You know, as as kind of as outraged as you sit there and just think about it now, it's got, it was completely predictable. Yeah, you know, it was always going to happen that the the forces lined up against wanting to do anything about climate change, and the money yeah. lined up against wanting to do anything about climate change would just start muddying the waters yeah. straight away. And it'd be about fuel loads and fucking arson, and and that's what you'd be talking about because they want even the numbers on the arsonists has been super inflated, right? From yeah. what I understand. Yeah. Well, they throw this number out. There's like there was 180 arrests, and but I think 120 of those were like on the spot fines for dropping a, a cigarette. And so, and like you say, the word arson, and that's why it's got so much power, and it's yeah. why it gets used in the media. Yeah. Because you you immediately think of of some little fucking pyromaniac. Who just runs around like maliciously lighting fires everywhere, deliberately to to burn shit down? And yeah. it's like, and it's not. Most of those things are all they're just careless. Mm. You know, it's some guy using an angle grinder or someone dropping a durry yeah. on the road, and you know, putting a campfire out on a on a um, total fire ban day. That's kind of what most of those things are. Yeah. And and that's all. Like in the last few days, all the the you know the police chiefs and the fire chiefs have come out and just go, well, that's it's it's a crock of shit. Yeah. It's, you know, most of the fires were lightning strikes. Um, but the real, the real issue, you're going to have ignitions everywhere anyway. That's what, that's, that's kind of life. Mm. You know, there is fire everywhere in where humans are. Um, the problem is the fact we've had the hottest, driest year in record and yeah. everything is bone dry and any kind of fire is going gonna, is gonna to yeah. go nuts. Yeah. The four last hottest years, right? Yeah, uh, well, mate, pretty yeah. much the last of the last twenty. I think the last twenty years globally contain, and don't hold me to this. I think sixteen of the hottest years 16 on record. Years on record in Australia. Like in, I can speak for Australia. Australia, twenty nineteen was the hottest and driest year yeah. on record on it since they've kept records here in Australia, and that's Bureau of Meteorology data. Which even the the fucking trolls have a go at that. They go, well, you know, it's a conspiracy. The Bureau of Meteorology, you know, that they're after grants and things, and the more extreme they make their results, that, and yeah. but but that's what last year was. It was the hottest, driest year ever on record. Yeah. Um, in December, we had in consecutive days. I think it was the first, second, third were the three hottest days on record in Australia yeah. when they me- measure the average. Average heat across the whole continent. I think it went 40.9, 40, 41.6, 41.9. Yeah. And that's over the whole of us, that's averaged out over the whole of Australia. Wow. Which is just rad when you think about it. 
the yeah. continent was that hot at that point. Mm. And um, and it's yeah, mate. If you can't, you know, if none of that makes sense to you, it never will. Yeah. It's um. Well, what's it going to take? Like when it comes to these fires and like we're right in the middle of it, like it's not going to end any day soon. Yeah, we're kind of, you know, with the fires, we're dealing with the immediacy of it. It's it's still burning today. You know, there's another, you know, 20, uh, 40, 50 knot change coming overnight somewhere down south coast. So it's, and South Australia is still burning. So that's what it is now. Um, but in the middle of that is emerging kind of, the wider conversation mm. as to why these things have happened yeah. and what, what it's going to take to stop them happening again yeah. um, and let the games begin because that's when it's going to get really, really contested. And we're seeing that already. Like, Do you feel like Scotty from Marketing Speech is kind of changing about climate change? In like the last couple of interviews, it kind of seems like he made this statement of there's no doubt. That there's a content, there's there's a, a contribution of you know these things yeah. and climate change is one of those and yeah. So um, do you feel like his rhetoric is kind of changing a little bit? Uh, no, nah, he's a rabid political animal. <laughs> he is he is a you look at his history. He's a rabid political animal, and he will say and do whatever he needs to. He'll say just enough to keep the heat off from the crew who want something done about climate change. It'll just like we're meeting our Kyoto targets, which Kyoto targets are our Paris target, they're bullshit. They're complete bullshit. We're, we're actually producing more greenhouse gas now. So we're, our emissions aren't dropping at all. No. So all this stuff, he actually he was interviewed last night and there was lies all through it. You know, we're the number one renewable, you know, per capita investment. We're not. We're at four or five and it's trailing off the investment because these guys are here throwing huge money at, at fossil fuel projects. Yeah. So it's all, it, he, he'll say whatever he needs to, to get him through this because he's on the run right now. Um, all this weird shit with him and the handshakes and Hawaii, it's just oh, like it's blowing dude. my mind. I just, so awkward. I'm looking at it just going, it looks like one of those movies. You see one of those movies where the <laughs> alien comes down and takes over someone's body but they've got no idea how to operate it and it's like, <laughs> Or what social kind of you know? Yeah, like how to Tom Cruise so- gets dubbed for that. Yeah, or how to act socially. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's like I'll sh- shake hands with this human creature. It's like <laughs> they're not shaking my hand. I'll grab. Read the hand. textbook on uh, how to be human. It's like but isn't a human. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like some weird reptilian shit that's going on, and it's just <laughs> I'm looking at it just going, mate. If it wasn't so serious, it'd be fucking hilarious. Yeah, and this guy is just doing this, but he's, but like I said, he's a political animal, mate. He's going to dig in around this, and his party will dig in, and it'll be really hard to dislodge him. Um, you know, you haven't got an election for till twenty twenty two, so you got no chance till then to get rid of him. So you've just got to mitigate the damage they can do in this in this time. Um, stuff like the bite stuff, it's great, mate. They, they put the brakes on him. You know, you've just got to delay. At some point, all of this stuff will not only become um, just wrong environmentally, it'll, it'll, it'll just be wrong morally, you know. Mm. And the longer you can, you can keep them, yeah. you can just push that, push them out, push Pressure. them out. Yeah. That, that day, there's a day coming where all of this stuff, we're not, even economically fossil fuels won't make any sense mm. and that's coming quickly. Mm. So the more you can, we can kind of stall these guys, um, the better, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you said about the immediacy with these fires right now, obviously we're raising millions, you know, um, for the fireys, for relief. But um, what do you think about the conversation about regeneration? Because I feel like that's something the government's not talking about right now. It's like, okay, it's these Band-Aid solutions of like get some water, splash it. Yep. But what next? What's... And after that dopamine's run out, when the person's <laughs> donated... Yep. And they're like, okay, I've done my bit, but like, fuck, we just... What's, what's the long-term fix? What, nearly a billion animals that have died? Yeah. And so Dude, like, it's... it might take 10 years to recover, maybe, Yep. Uh, for our it's... ecosystems. Yeah, the whole thing, it's... You know, and like you can go back to, and they'll roll out the, all the familiar tropes. You know, Australian bush, it does this every time. It regenerates. It it ha, it's designed to be burnt, and it is designed to be burnt. You know, it's it that's how it it's actually evolved that way, but it hasn't evolved to be burnt the way it just got burnt. And and if you put a second fire back through a, a fire that hasn't even regenerated, you know, it's like, and particularly when you talk about fauna, it, like that that takes. Decades, you know, they take decades to get back, and they need good years, a lot of good years between these crazy years, to to actually re- rebuild populations in all sorts of stuff. And we've got no sense of what's what we've even lost yet, um, in terms of your your um, ecosystems, let alone kind of what that is going to look like in ten years' time. But if you get successive years of this stuff, we're fucked. It's like that's the. That's the crazy thing, and and you look at the numbers. It's that's what it is. All these hot years are just bookending together, one after the other after the other. So what was like a once in a fifty year or a hundred year fire might be once in ten or once in five, and then stuff just doesn't get a chance to yeah, recover. to recover, and you just don't. And that just happens for long enough, and you're just going to lose great parts of it. So there's there's short term issues to deal with and getting people back on their feet and and making sure that this doesn't happen, that we're ready at least in terms of a response if these fires happen again because that's been the other shit show is you've had these governments just rip millions out of the capabilities of rural fire services, all of this. So they haven't had the the, the tools to, to deal with a fire like this, you know, and they ignored all the warnings and, and didn't invest and just said, no, no, it's fine. And the place burnt. And so they've got to learn those lessons first. And then the next lesson is, right, what's going to stop? One, what's going to stop the f- fires like that? And then what are you going to do about these year-on-year yeah. temperature records? You can't go on forever like this. Because it so. hits home when whole towns are going to have to shut down. Yep. It's, and it's happening out west already. Yeah. You know, just, they're just out of water. There's no <laughs> water there. So you can't have, if you don't have water, you don't have a town. And that's that's happening. You're getting oh, that that dislocation already. Mm. People already like that was the first time I saw in this thing that you know the term you know climate refugees were oh, were getting used in in terms of Australia. This is like it, you're not talking about Jakarta, <laughs> or you're not talking about Bangladesh where it's low lying and inundation. It's like it's climate refugees who won't be able to go back to where they they just mm. came from because it won't be safe. Mm. You know because stuff's changed. And that's here in Australia. Yeah. Which is fuck. And then like you look at Jakarta, like the Indonesians already, they're moving Jakarta. Did you know that? No. They are gonna relocate Jakarta to the other side of Borneo. What? Yep. Already in motion. Because Jakarta's like 
essentially built on on swampland. It's one of the lowest lying capital cities in the in the world, and they're already planning to move it. So, you know, um, but swampland meaning that it's going to be vulnerable to inundation. Yep, but to sea level rise. Oh my goodness. Mm. So, like, and this stuff's happening like around the world, and I think we got a stark reminder that it's we're not immune to it, and particularly seeing. We're one of the worst contributors in terms of what we're doing um, and certainly per capita but just in terms of the, the look of it wow. and, and the yeah. way we're talking about it is you know, that's why the world's interested in this. They're looking at Australia's fires going, well, you've got these dickheads running the place mm. who walk into parliament with a lump of coal and two years later their country burns, yeah. you know. They're drawing a straight line between the two because it is a straight line. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Um, I wanted to ask you, man, um, you've got such an incredible life and so many stories and like I live in Maroubra and very proud to live. I love waking up to Maroubra. I surf every day, get my turmeric lattes from Johnny and um, I've there's so many cool stories and there's so many people from all over the world that live there. Now it's changed a lot in the yeah. last 10, 15 years but you spent a bit of time there and yes. so um, you wrote a book about – um, the Apson Brothers. I did. I've done a lot of time there. Um, so, crew, bra boys, did you see the film? It was amazing. Sean with, with his speed dealer sunnies, <laughs> he was in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now we did the, the book with the, um, with the boys. Back I think it was like published in 07, I think it was. So, yeah, probably like Maribor really different now to, to what it was then, but it was changing back then anyway. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of money coming into the place. There's a Beautiful suburb, like it. Mm. It had yeah a lot of concrete around it, but um, but just even with the rifle range out there and just the beach itself, mm. um, it's still probably like the best surfing beach in the eastern suburbs. Yeah, definitely. Am I saying all the right stuff? Yeah. Here, <laughs> or I should say it's the, attraction. Or I should say it's the worst. I'll send them all to Bronny instead. <laughs> but it was it was cool. It was like um, it was an interesting study just to, to be in the middle of all of that and all the drama and all the, you know, the shit that was going on there. But yeah. just to, to... Can you kind of inform some of our listeners of what is the story, what was the catalyst for some of this activity and reactivity to occur? Yeah, sure. Well, look, the suburb of Maroubra has always been pretty rough, you know, um, always going back as long as you, there's been kind of white fellas living there. Um, but it had a real reputation for like for for kind of rough crew but also like a larrick. It also had a, the flip side of that. There was like a larrikin element to it <laughs> as well where it was well-meaning but it was just extreme well-meaning um, where it was you had to um, – I think they were running at that, at that point the Bra Boys were running with the slogan hated and proud <laughs> which kind of summed, which summed them up pretty perfectly. Um, but it was just – it was a pretty wild place. And then the book obviously is around the Abaddon brothers. Um, there's four of them, uh, Sonny, Jai, Kobe and Dakota. Um, it was more at the three older boys at that point. Of course, all, all three of them are amazing surfers. Great, like you've seen obviously Kobe's exploits. Um, he was – probably at that time he was the biggest surfer in the world. Mm. He, was, he was doing all his slab stuff. He was just when you say the biggest surfer in the world, that's a big call. Yeah, totally. Well, he, mate, he was in that because I was running surf mags. We ran, 
I was running tracks at that point. I think we ran one year, he was on the cover four times and pretty much Whoa. every, but that was every mag around the world. He was just, he was would, it mainly for slabby, throaty, yep. big-ish wave. Like was he, yeah, because like he's kind of known from my generation as being like a, a charger. Yep. He was the charger. The charger. Yep. And it was, and that was one element of, of him. And the other one was just his personality. It was yeah, just like fucking sure. just like full on and just like completely unfiltered, just said whatever was on his mind, which made, if you're running magazines, it's awesome because yeah. he's going to give you, he'll tell you exactly what he thinks and then 10% on top of that mm. as well. And that was, that's his nature, you know, mm. and it was, it was never boring. <laughs> but, um, but these guys that come from a rough background, their mum had been a heroin addict her whole life and they'd, they'd live with their grandmother for most of it. Um, and, um, apparently, Kobe's dad was pretty rough. Yeah, well, they never, they never. F- oh, was it his wife, uh, mum's boyfriend? Yeah, mum's boyfriend. Yeah, right. yep. yeah. So, and they went through all these these heavy households as kids, and mm. um, never knew their dads. Apparently, different dads mm. for um, for all of them. And but then you had around that the wider group of Maroubra was just full on, you know, because mm. um, it was like the Lexo Housing Commission. Um, block was just up the road and there was a real kind of, you know, there was also a criminal element around town that was pretty strong. Yeah. Like Long Bay was just up the top of the hill. Yeah. And, and that kind of, you know, there was always that element hanging around with the hardcore surf element yeah. as well and it, the lines kind of mixed a bit and the, the bra boys are in the middle of it. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but, yeah, then, it, 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 you know, obviously the, you know, it came to a head when Jai had the, Jai ended up, Shooting a guy called Anthony Hines um, over who was who was Hines. He was one of the gnarliest gnarliest guys. He he was one of the top dogs in Long Bay when he'd done time up there. So heavy heavy guys, but also a Maroubra guy mm. as well. Um, and then had a falling out. He was after Jai that wrestled over a gun. The whole and then Jai so Jai the Hines he got shot. Mm. Went before court, Jai got acquitted, acquitted on self-defence. And so, but you imagine all of this happening in the middle of the whole Bra Boys mania thing. Yeah. And the papers were just feeding on it. Because that was covered in the film, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah it was all on the, the other case. side of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so Jai was acquitted for self for mm. self on self-defence. But the all the like suddenly having that happen on top of Kobe being Kobe at that point because mm. Kobe was was it that was at the t- height of his powers, mm. um, and then all the bra boys and they were, it was just a weekly thing you know there was trouble like they'd get into trouble somewhere and somewhere else and somewhere else, and the papers just fed on it and just and they inflamed it and mm. and then some of the and it kind of you know a lot of the the bra boys crew kind of ran with it as well because mm. it was suddenly like yeah it's. There was a platform there. Mm. Everyone knew who they were mm. and that kind of um, escalated as well. But then like anything does, you know, it's it's tapered off mm. and and those guys got older. Yeah. And, got and, dad bods, yeah, had got, kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is most of them are all still pretty gnarly, in gnarly condition um, <laughs> and they're all because that's, that's what they do there, you know, they're, they're just full on. They're just the energy just never runs out in wow. that place. With those guys that surf and training, you know, jujitsu and going out, and that I bumped into Richie Vass like a few months ago, yeah. stretching at the beach, like lovely guy. Yep, yep, and that was the group, mate. I actually I loved hanging out with those crew. Yeah, you know, it was heavy times because there was a lot of shit, and they were, they were, 
trouble with the cops every five minutes. Wow. Um, at that point, because the cops they had big targets on them on these on the bra boys, and the bra which they probably deserved for the most part. Um, but it was just a you know it was full on, but. At the heart of most of those guys, they're just big, they were big-hearted guys and probably too big-hearted in a lot of ways mm. in that they'd do anything for their mates. Mm. Um, but it was a re- really interesting um, exercise to, to get to, to know those guys and be in the middle of it. And, and I still speak to pretty much all of them, you mm. know, at certain times and they're still around. But like I said, they just, you just get older. You get older, a bit wiser. You're not going to chase trouble as much. You're going to try and avoid it. Most of them have got families. Like Kobe's mm. got kids now. He's living yeah, in living sure. in Indo. When and I was um, surfing Desert Point for the first time when I was 22, mm-hmm. um, yeah, a bunch of the crew were there, all the tats and everything, but they kind of just let me hang out with them. One of their guys was starting a Bra Boys School of Surf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name, but um, yeah, just landed. they kind of just took me in. Yeah. I was just surfing because I was alone. I was just kind of like just looking for crew, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're always was... getting the same jaffles, always the same gutto gutto, the same, you know, warong. And um, but yeah, man. Um uh so writing that book, you were spending like two years kind of hovering around there. You weren't living in Maribra though. No, I was I was across the bridge at DY. DY yeah. at that point. Um yeah, it would have cost my sanity, I think, living in Maribor at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, because it, it was just it was really tense. Like there was yeah. really there's a real tension about it. Yeah, as well. Sure. Um, and those which those guys kind of were really feeling yeah. as well. And you just couldn't, as an outsider, yeah. you just couldn't deal with too much of it. And so I think as a writer, as an observer, and as a really relational human, like coming closer with the boys, um. I don't know, like, what did you see as far as, like, obviously part of the Bra Boys story is part of my story. Like, mm, you know, yep. like I feel when I see even the film, like I see part of myself, like this search a bit for identity. Yep. I've got a pretty broken relationship with my dad. Mm, yeah. And just, you know, just this connection. Yep. Like I began to kind of resonate a little bit and were there, were there certain patterns that you saw and just, you know, an insight into humanity? Oh, absolutely. Yep. They were – the thing that really struck me about them is – they weren't that different to because, mm. like, you look at surfing totally. subcultures everywhere, you know, yeah. and they tend to be pretty insular, um, you know, pretty territorial and pretty extreme in their own ways wherever they are. And but the the bra boys were just had just turned it up to, you know, it had gone past ten. It was onto about twenty five <laughs> by that point. It was just it was just so full on. But they felt it. They were carrying on a tradition as well mm. of of that extreme behaviour from the generations above them. As mm. well, they felt a sense of duty to carry it on, yeah. Um, and so they were bigger, rat, like they want to be bigger rat bags and anyone surf bigger waves, yeah. You know, charge harder, you know, cause more mayhem, um, and that's that's what it was for that yeah. that point in time. But they weren't that different, you know. Yeah. To, and they're completely relatable and and also, you know, misunderstood in a lot of ways because it, it painted. In the press, obviously, is this surf gang, and it was mm. you know violent surf gang, and but also like on they were also really open and accepting, particularly to to crew from overseas from other places, mm. um, really open. And then you had the weird dichotomy where you know, Kobe hated boogie boarders, you know, <laughs> really just hated boogie boarders. But <laughs> but if you came from Brazil or you came from Lebanon, you came in and chat like he he 
or you're a Samoan. They were really multicultural in that yeah. way as well. And real, but they, funny, they kind of got dubbed as being racist with the Lebanese riots. Yeah, well, they got that was because they got towed into that. Well, Kobe towed him into that by yeah. talking to the papers, and then the papers interpreted it one way. Yeah, for sure. And so suddenly, and that's how it was perceived even from Newey. We're like, yeah. oh, yeah. And then when Kobe, fight. when Cronulla happened, yeah, the next night it happened in Maroubra. They just yeah. moved up there, and it was all on the back of of Kobe talking to the papers mm. and the papers presenting it one way and and then yeah. so the, the Lebanese crew just straight in. Yeah. But then it, it all, like, they actually, they sorted it out between themselves mm. um, and that was, and that was the, they were actually pretty dirty that, that they'd been towed into it mm. when the reality of kind of how they actually act day to day is they're really multicultural. Mate, there's, there's heaps of Islander crew in there, there's heaps of crew from... Yeah. You know, a lot, lot of mix, like, you know, a lot of like middle, there's Middle East crew, there's all sorts of crew, you know, half from a Canterbury supporters, you know. <laughs> so, so it's like, and the other half of South. It's yeah. like there's this weird, like a lot of Indigenous crew in there. So they all got chucked in there together. Mm. So it was less about kind of where they'd come from in mm. terms of their ethnic background and mm. and more just about, it was more the Maroubra state of mind, yeah. you know, where just go hard. Um, Sean, you definitely have a way with people. Like as soon as, soon as I met you, I felt really comfortable and um, and I think you have a really deeply relational element. I remember you saying to me before that somehow, like one thing that you're kind of good at is connecting with people, you know, still being a writer, still being a journo, but still being, you know, part of that kind of crew without them feeling like there's some dude coming in and posing and trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. tell it's, a biased story of their life. Yeah, well, it's like it's, it's a bit of a, um, you know, if you, you're trying to write – like deeper stories about people and getting to know kind of what really makes them tick. You kind of need to be there, but you need to not be there at the same point. Mm. So you need to be around them, and but you need to not actively try and be in part of like try and just pull yourself back just a little bit so you can watch it and they and this crew interact with the crew so they know you and get to a point where they trust you at least mm. to open up about stuff. Um, that they wouldn't open up to to other people, mm. and it's and it's a generally a, a product of time as well. So you need to you need to do time with a lot of these people. That's why the the bra boys thing was a couple of years, mm. and I had to do like a lot of sessions in, in the Maroubra Bay pub, like and a lot yeah. of sessions surfing with those guys, and mm. and you kind of had to just be there. Yeah, and 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 by osmosis over time, they just they just trust you to mm. to. Tell at least be honest yeah, about what you're going to write about them. Yeah. Um, Hawaii, like Hawaii, is another perfect example of that because mm. you got to you got to be careful with what you write about Hawaii. Yeah. Um, and try and trying to be honest about what's happening without, you know, getting your teeth removed. Um, it's kind of it can actually be kind of hard at, yeah. you know, at certain times. Yeah. You've got to do the dance a little bit, and you've got to invest time to know people and get yeah. them to at least know who you are. Yeah. But at the same time, not be so big, yeah. you know, try and make yourself out to be this grandiose figure and yeah. the, the, they're going to want to take you down. They don't trust you. You yeah. kind of just, yeah, it's you just have to stay close enough but not too close. Have you done any work within the um, male mental health kind of realm? Have you had a voice in that at all? Uh, I haven't. Um, I probably did a, a little bit indirectly when the Peterson book came out, mm-hmm. um, which was quite a while ago now. But that was at that point. Um, of course, this is Michael Peterson's book, mm. and he, you know, he he'd been off the scene for a long time by this point, and it was all and it was all schizophrenia. Mm. So he'd um 
he developed schizophrenia in the end of the 70s and then disappeared. And so a lot of that book was about schizophrenia and, and, mm. and how that actually translates and, and his, his life and how, that, and how the schizophrenia kind of directed it. Um, and there wasn't when that came out. There wasn't a huge understanding yeah. about schizophrenia at all. Like when I started writing it, I, <clears throat> I had no. I just thought it was some, it was some trigger in your mind that. Um, that so when, that did he, you, when did he kind of tap out from the scene? And uh, early eighties or early 80, 80s. 83. Cool. Yep. Wow. He was and he was undiagnosed till eighty three. Yeah. So and, it, and it that was when he conversation. It wasn't acknowledged and and even male vulnerability. 60s, 70s, no one war kids. You know. Exactly. What it comes schizophrenia generally comes with a drug habit as well, yeah. because what what schizophrenia is, it's your senses and your brain playing tricks on you. Mm. So you you can your brain interprets hearing things that aren't there, or seeing things, or particularly thinking things mm. that aren't there. You know, um, and so you get you you do get these crazy ideas, and you it's pretty insidious mm. that disease because that's what it does. It like your own brain plays tricks on you. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you, tr- you you trust it, but you don't trust it mm. as well. And no one knew like, it was around, but he was under, like he was undiagnosed till eighty three. By which stage, like he had to go to jail for that to happen. Mm. And then, within you know a few months, he'd he'd had shock treatment to mm. deal with it. And it's it was only a rudimentary understanding then. So even when the book came out twenty years later, people still didn't really know, and myself included, didn't really know exactly how it worked mm. and, and what it was and mm. and so it was a real education for me and I think that was the one, you know, um, the one thing that came out of that book was there was amongst the crew who read it was a bit a better understanding mm. of. Sorry, Sean, when did you release that book? Oh, uh, 2004. Okay. I think it was, yep. Trying to keep up. So it was a while ago quite, now quite though. It was like, fuck it, mate, I'm getting old now. It was, <laughs> but that was like, yeah, oh four. Yeah. So, but it was good. It was like for me, it was a huge ed- education. Yeah, to have to understand. Um, his, and even like a revelation super, for you because it wasn't quite. It wasn't talked about yeah. with his career, or was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, he was so they're always been really secretive about it because, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's a product again of it not being understood. Mm. So, because no one understood what was wrong with him, mm. like they didn't fully understand at the start, and no one really understood, and and there wasn't a lot of kind of empathy out there mm. for it because there was no understanding. And so he basically all they, they he hid from the world for 20 years, mm. you know. Um, and so and he still and then w- he was still around obviously at the time. So we were interviewing for the book. So I had to kind of yeah. we did a lot of face-to-face time and he was really reluctant about doing it, didn't really want to do it. Um, but the family wanted a record of it. Mm. And so we stuck at it and I kind of – you know, just through persist- again, it's that time thing, persistence of, of just being there, and he would walk in, he go, ah, oh, here he goes. Mm. But then we talk. I'd over time, I'd find stuff he'd like to talk about, mm. and we talk about that first, and then we drift onto stuff that I needed to talk about for the book, a bit more. Mm. But he was super sharp as well. Mm. You know, that was he, he wasn't. You know, this guy would beset with mental illness and fragile, and mm. mate, he was still sh- completely shrewd. Mm. He was still playing the game, and and but it was just yeah, he just had this thing hanging around, and mm. that he had to deal with. Um, at what point did you become friends with Andy Irons? Uh well, working in mags, 
Uh, we were kind of, yeah, we're covering all his exploits. Mm. Like the, probably came, I wouldn't even say friends, like we were, but we were close and we're like we, were, we could sit there and have yeah. conversations and um, it was, you know, probably towards, it was after his world titles. Wow. And and so probably, you know, it was all more or less when he was on his in his decline a little more. Yeah. So, but I did through, you know, working with Parkow a bit and, of course, he and Parkow were best mates. So I saw him a lot in the last couple of years mm. of his life and I was around the tour a lot in those last couple of years. Mm. So I'd see him at all contests mm. and they were <clears> – <throat> that was when he was dealing with all his shit mm. as well, you know. Um, yeah. The stuff stuff we kind of knew about and the stuff we kind of didn't. And, yeah. Oh, and they were, <clears throat> it breaks your heart. Yeah, it was – but, yeah, like in the middle of those – for all the, you know, for how it ended and as sad as that was, like in the middle of those last couple of years, there were really, there were moments where he was really, you know, you just really felt positive for where he was going to end up. Mm. And, you know, we did a fair bit of time. At one point here when he got clean and came over here and and hung down, they were staying down at Angowry for, for weeks on end and they were putting him down there so he was away from temptation really. Mm. But he was down there surfing and he was, man, he was just clear-minded, surfing every day um, and, yeah, and you just kind of, man, and like Lindy was there and yeah. just go, right, okay, well, it's all, you know, it's cool. He's going to, he'll beat this and, um, and you know, get away from what the tour. What do you believe and, was at the core of his journey, like his core demon that was causing him to make some of these decisions that weren't so uh, I think he's just predisposed to, um, to, to chasing mm. stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, you because know, people can be predisposed to addictions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and he was he was hardwired to be full on as well. Mm. You know that's why he was such an amazing surfer. Yeah. Um, and then, but he was also not hardwired to deal with a lot of the bullshit that came with it. Yeah. You know, Peterson's the same. So because Andy was diagnosed bipolar as a kid. Yeah. And and that wasn't widely known at all. Mm. You know when he was. Going through all his years on tour, that wasn't like he he never publicly acknowledged it. Yeah. Um, I I just I get so excited because we are in a time where things are changing when it comes to male connection, openness, vulnerability, and um, I'm really proud to to be part of that that kind of change in the tide when it yeah. comes to literally. Man, when I was younger, I was just told stop being emotional. Like, yeah, 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 like, yeah. Yeah. If I was told I was emotional for my sisters. I just felt mm. so ashamed and defensive, yep. reactive. But it's beautiful that there is a climate of the dawn of the new man yeah. and, and that it's 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 okay to say that you're not okay. Yeah, totally. And, um, but, yeah, I just don't think it was a thing 10 years ago even for myself. Like I think nah. it's just things are open. Well, even with my age gap to you, yeah. it was it was different again for me growing up. It was like mm. a lot tougher environments mm. that you grew up in. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, my house is all brothers. Yeah. So, so you know, we didn't have, you know, I had my mum there was a, a really kind of soft nurturing influence, mm. but everything else was fucking really hard mm. and you you were hard with other people generally mm. and and so even in my lifetime I've had to, to kind of take the edge off that a bit, mm. you know, as we've got older and some of those things like having to, to jump into projects like the Peterson one and that teaches you to mm. be more open and understanding about, other people's lives, mm. and and to be less judgmental, and and kind of that certainly helped me along the way. 
Yeah, and having kids, obviously, that that does it for everyone, mm. you know, at some point. Um, just a final thought, man, because we've got to wrap up. I've been really thankful for your time. I've had the most incredible chat. And um, could you pinpoint um, a moment in your life where there was some kind of personal awakening, a personal renaissance um, where something changed? Uh, mm, good question. I don't know. I'm not one of those guys who kind of forensically looks back at my life a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do actually one, <clears throat> there is probably one moment when I <clears throat> I actually got into medicine at oh, Newcastle wow. Uni, right, when I left good school. Good uni. Good uni. <laughs> Too good in a lot of ways. <clears throat> but it, Newcastle had the best medic, medical school in the country and I got into it. Um, but they did and I had to go down for a grading exam um, and I'd, <clears throat> I'd lived at, I was living at Foster at that point, a couple of hours away, drove down. Um, I was only 17 because I was pretty young for for my year. So went in, did the first, it was a, t- a full day exam. I did the first half. They did an hour, had an hour and a half break in the middle of it. I said, right, sweet. I had a board in the car. I said, I'm going to go and have a surf. <clears throat> Didn't realise at that point that the uni was so far out the back of Newcastle that it's like 25 minutes, like 35 in traffic. So I got to the cliff, surfed. <clears throat> Waves of pumping, started surfing, kind of realised time was getting away, paddled over to this guy, asked him for the time. <clears throat> the, the test, second half of the test was starting in five minutes. Oh, my goodness. And I, and I, started, I kind of sat there and I thought, and I thought, you know what, <clears throat> I don't want to do medicine anyway. It, was, it was, wasn't even, it wasn't expected of me by my mum. My it was... Like it's just what you did. If yeah. you got the marks to do medicine, you did yeah, medicine. It's, it's like fucking, mate, that's what you do. Mm. And I did, and I, and I, right on the spot, I went, you know what? <clears throat> I don't want to be a doctor anyway. I, I hate blood. I hate the sight of blood. I faint at it. And I, I probably don't want to have to deal with people day in, day out with problems. It's like mm. I'd rather just do my own thing. And that's all I've done wow. since then is, do, is just do shit I want to do. Um, and then, you know, that's why I, I worked in music for a while and it's, just, it's avoiding real, you know, like adult jobs. And that's been the one theme in my life is yeah. avoiding stuff that seems like, you know, adult jobs. And then I worked in surf mags, which is probably the least serious fucking career you could ever go in. But it's all – in the long run, it's that they've, had, they've turned into serious jobs. Yeah. Um, but that was a real crossroads moment there mm. and that you could have gone down a straight path um, but I wanted to go, like I, I grew up in a pretty anarchistic, like I, Dead Kennedy's my favourite band, like we were, we were little punks and I didn't want to go into a system, mm. you know. I'd rather just do something that was, that was a little more anti-establishment mm. and maybe that's why I've ended up sitting here as ScoMo's best mate now. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like maybe it's come to revisit me, you know, later in life. Yeah. But, yeah, that's no, a good question, Bill. Yeah, for sure, man. Is there anything, like, because I think just with that, I think you really confronted something awesome of, like, you know, there's a certain narrative, get the get the marks, become a doctor, become a lawyer. Mm. It's kind of void of, you know, yeah. what's your purpose and what's your thing and, you know, tuning in to what you really want, your own intuition. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, the generations since, it's a little freer. Yeah, um, I think people not. understand that and and. And I think kids going through school get a much better today, get a much better taste of other parts of life. Like my daughter's 
this year is doing a um, doing a month in the Northern Territory in an Aboriginal community. Mm. You know, um, and that would that was would have been unthinkable yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, that would have been unthinkable to that the school would actually do that for you. <laughs> you know, so she's going to go out there and and, yeah. and live and work in a community for a few weeks. Oh, man. And that's and that's and so it's a lot more open minded, and I think they let people find their own groove a little easier these days. And it's and it's I think it's a result of what you're you know what you're saying. It's, it's the world's a bit more open. Yeah. You see more of it, you know, yeah. social media that you see everything, so you know that world's out there. Yeah, and um, it is one of the redeeming features man. of social media. And it seems like you love your kids. <laughs> yeah, they're good. Drive me fucking nuts occasionally, but, <laughs> but don't all kids. <laughs> Sean, no, uh, goal, it's mate. been a pleasure, man. Honestly, thanks yeah. so much for having me. No, I'm going to put a little closing note in here too, mate. Yeah, come on. I want to thank you for tagging along for the, on this fucking road trip. It's still going <laughs> a year later. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to end. But, yeah, no, you brought a really good energy. And I think you, more than anyone, mate, have summed up kind of what, what these these pro- protests or gatherings or, you know, they're more, they're more celebrations mm. than protests, celebrations of what we've got as opposed to wanting to kick down the doors of, of you know, the mm. house. It's a better – the energy you kind of get across is what, what I really want these things to be, mm. you know, and celebrations of the, of the life we get to live. Yeah. Um, and hats off to you, dude. Yeah, thanks, Shauno. I <laughs> – yeah, I don't want to have to go down a whole other rabbit hole again or talk too much, but just I think what happened on that whole trip was this thing of like, look, we're here, we're present. It's not about being more polarised. It's not about demonising more. It's like that energy was so important. Yeah. And I feel mm. I really think you uh, you brought it out of me. So the froth chain, mate. Look Thanks forward. so much, Shauna. No worries, mate. Look forward. Fight the bite too coming yeah, next year. 2.0. We're we'll, we'll back on the road, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Good on you, mate.